Uh, so if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn it to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2, and we're going to get kicked off and, and just go for just a few minutes. And, um, you know, as we approach uh, the Psalms, obviously we're reading the Psalms very differently than we would read, uh, say, Judges that John Mark is uh, in on Sunday mornings, or uh, we're going to read it very differently than the Gospels because we're coming to poetry. And so what we have to see in poetry is um, uh, there's a reason even structurally why the Psalm is set up the way that it's set up. And so... In Psalm chapter 2, very simply, there are four um, little stanzas. So you can see them separated. Every three verses, then you have a space. Every three verses, then you have a space. Those stanzas then help us sort of gather and connect the thought that is going on here in this psalm. And so in these four stanzas, um, we're going to look at um, the world's destructive plan. Then we're going to move to the Lord's mocking response, so the Lord's uh, the world's destructive plan. Then we're going to see the response of God, the mocking response of God. Then we're going to see the Lord's perfect plan. And then the fourth stanza we'll look at the world's recommended response. So it goes world's plan, God's response to that plan, God's plan, and then how the world then should respond. Okay, so that's sort of how this psalm breaks down. And again, this is helping us as we approach the rest of the psalms because, uh, as I mentioned uh, a couple weeks ago as well, um, you know, psalms are, uh, they have different genres. As, uh, they, they're co- trying to uh, accomplish different things. And so you get to some psalms and they're lamenting psalms. And so in a lament, you're crying out to God. Uh, some songs are enthronement songs where you're highlighting God as king. Well, this is a, what we call a royal psalm or a messianic psalm. When we say that, that means that we are highlighting and looking at Jesus. Now, you may not see Jesus in this passage, but we're going to look at that here in a second. Um, And and so some of the Psalms are specifically prophesying and looking toward Christ. And so um, this is appropriately at the very beginning of the Psalms, we're already looking at Jesus in Psalm chapter 2. All right, so the world's plan, God's response to that plan, the Lord's plan, and our response then uh, what it should be. So let's just look at the world's plan here um, in a second. Actually, let me just pray for us real quick, and then we'll dive in. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Psalm chapter 2, that we can come to it, and knowing that um, far before even Jesus was on the scene, you knew your plan. Um, that, 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 that Jesus was coming and that him as the anointed one would defeat the rulers, the kings of this world, would defeat sin, would defeat death, would defeat brokenness, and in his coming would bring everlasting life. And so, Lord, I pray that as we open up Psalm chapter 2, that you speak to us, uh, you move uh, through the power of your Holy Spirit. It's in your son Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. All right, let's do this. Someone read verses 1 through 3. Psalm 2, 1 through 3. So why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? See, the plans, the desires, the wishes, the hopes, all that the world is trying to do is move toward and stand against the Lord and his anointed one. So I want to look at that anointed one. How many of you guys in your, in your Bible, the anointed one or anointed is capitalized? 
Okay, so a few translations go ahead and do that for you. Um, so the question becomes, who is that anointed one? So the world, uh, the, the nations that are raging, the peoples that are plotting in vain, um, <clears throat> that they're plotting in vain against the Lord and his anointed one. So the question becomes, well, who then is that anointed one? Uh, in Acts chapter 4, verse 25 through 28, I want to read this. So obviously Acts in the New Testament after Jesus' resurrection. Let's listen to this and then we'll figure out, okay, well, what, what are we saying about that anointed one? Verse 25 of chapter 4 in Acts, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. So while your psalm in Psalm chapter 2 probably doesn't have a heading that it was written by David, Acts chapter 4 actually comes back in and says, look, okay, this is written by our father David. It says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And then verse 27, indeed, okay, so he basically, they insert verses 1 through 3 of, chapter, of Psalm chapter 2. So Psalm chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 is inserted into Acts chapter 4. Indeed, now in verse 27, indeed Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So what's interesting here is when this, these three verses are now plugged into the context of Acts chapter four, right? So we know the Holy Spirit has come at Pentecost. Um, Peter has preached uh, at Pentecost. Thousands are coming to Jesus. Now they're the, before these officials, and they're sort of giving a defense. And in their giving a defense, they point back to Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, to say this. Who is the anointed one? Well, by the prophet David, okay, so by David in speaking, this anointed one, well, the nations that rage... The peoples that plot in vain, the kings of the earth who take their stand, and the rulers conspire together. All of those people, who are they? Well, this is how the passage identifies them. Well, that's Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city conspire against your holy servant who? Jesus. So who, who's standing against the Lord and his anointed one? Well, that's Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel. All of those people, why, where do we see that? Well, that's why, when we come to Passion Week, and we begin to see all the people who turn against Jesus, the anointed one of the Lord. So when we begin to ask, why do the nations rage, the people's plot in vain, the kings of the earth take their stand, the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one? That anointed one, naturally, because Acts 4 now, as we are New Testament believers, helps us then determine that that anointed one is Jesus. And that, that's helpful because what that says is God knew all along that Jesus was going to be turned against and it was a part of his grander plan to bring about salvation to those same nations. Further, so we see uh, it, it was the will of God that those things that the nations would rage against the anointed one. But broader, okay. so if we think of the Lord, they stand against the Lord and his anointed one. Not only is it standing particularly against Jesus himself, now also the rulers of this earth, the kings, the peoples who plot in vain, the rulers who conspire together, who all, while specifically they're going against Jesus, now broader, they're also going against God's plan for salvation. Right? So it... If we think about it, it's, it's um, in, in verse 3. Okay, So you have this group of people, the nations that rage, the people's plot in vain, the kings, the rulers, all those people. They're coming together, and then if, uh, in verse 3 you have these quotes. 
This is what, as they come together, this is what they are saying. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. Now, that seems a little odd. What, what's going on here? Um, when, when we get to that, that, those, those quotes, it's basically saying this. Let us be free to commit all manner of abominations. Let us be, be our own gods. Let us rid ourselves of restraint. So what they're trying to do is they're saying they're all coming together. This, this group of people, the world, is coming together, and they're saying this thing. Let's rid ourselves of the Lord. Let's get away from his uh, binding plans. Let's do our own thing. Let's be our own gods. Now, what's interesting is that we actually see this now in our world. So if it's obviously the, the, the world stands against Jesus, the world also stands against those who follow Jesus. Naturally. Uh, uh, how many are Luke Bryan fans, right? Nobody's going to admit that. Don't admit that. I will make fun of you, right? So Luke Bryan, right? Country singer. Uh, you can call him, I wouldn't call him a country singer, whatever he is. Uh, he, uh, he has this song. Uh, how many of you have heard the song? Okay, this one unashamedly, just because it happened to come up on the radio. It's not on your Spotify playlist. Um, uh, Most people are good. Anyone heard that song? Okay, let me just read a few of the lyrics. I'm not going to sing it for you. All right, don't, don't want to go there. But um, most people are good. This is a new song by Luke Bryan. Here's what he says. I believe most people are good. And most mamas ought to qualify for sainthood. I believe most Friday nights look better under neon or stadium lights. I believe you love who you love. Ain't nothing you should ever be ashamed of. I believe this world ain't half as bad as it looks. I believe most people are good. Now, it's interesting. Because if you really begin to press uh, unbelievers around us and you begin to ask the question, do you think that the majority of people on this earth are good and there are just a few bad ones out there? I think a lot of people would come to the same conclusion. Yeah, most people are good. You just got some crazy people out there. But most people in and of themselves are good. Let's just come to, uh, rather than the world defining who we are, let's let scripture define us real quick. In Romans chapter 1, just as a, a small example, Here's what it says. God gave them over to the depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. Verse 29 of Romans 1. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips and slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, Scripture paints a very different picture of where we are as mankind. Right? Our world tells us, oh, it's okay, we're good. Well, Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, the nations, they are plotting in vain to break themselves of the binding, what they call binding, of the Lord, so that they can be their own gods. Why? Because we're good, we can do what we want to do when we want to do it, because that's what we want to do. We should not ever be surprised when the world stands against the Lord and his anointed one. It's from scripture. We're talking about Psalm chapter 2. I know normally when we come to prophecies, we go to Isaiah or we go to uh, any of the minor prophets. And and we we go there and those are naturally because they're prophets. But we're talking in Psalm chapter 2, one that we're supposed to be encouraged by. It's also a prophecy pointing to Jesus that it should not shock us that the world stands against us. Right? And, and think, what was, the, let's think all the way back to the Garden of Eden real quick in Genesis chapter 3. 
What was the problem in the garden? Well, Adam and Eve, they were created in the image of God. They were told not to eat of that tree, but anything else they could eat. The serpent comes up to Eve. What does the serpent say? Hey, just go, just go eat of that, that tree right over there. Just, just do it. Just, just go over there. It's a, it's a delicious little red apple. You can, it probably wasn't an apple. It was probably more of a pomegranate. But um, go over there and just eat that. And what, how does Eve respond? No, if I cannot touch it or I will what? Surely die. And Satan says, oh, you will not die. Sure, you will not die. And said what? You will become like God. Since the beginning, since Genesis chapter 3, Satan has been telling us to rid ourselves of big G God and become our own little G God. Satan has been telling us and lying to us and telling us that we don't need Yahweh and and the Almighty. We don't need God, our creator. We don't need him. But instead, let's stand against him because we know what's better. Why? Because we're good. And in his lies and in his deception, he leads us down the path and the nations plot in vain. And the rulers of this world conspire and the kings of this earth, they all make these plans to stand against the Lord and his anointed. We shouldn't be surprised that the world stands against us. We shouldn't be surprised that the world stood against Jesus. At the same time, we're not going to just stop there. That would be a really depressing way to stop. Okay, So fortunately, we, we then pick it back up in verse 4. And so we see the world's destructive plan is to stand against God. And that's the lies that the enemy will continue to tell us. That our way is trash. That Follow your own way. Follow your own heart. Do this good because in and of yourself, you need to rid yourself of big G God and become your own little G God. Now, from that, if that's the world's plan, what is the Lord's response? Somebody read verses 5 through 6. Or, I mean, I'm sorry, 4, 5, and 6. Yeah. So what's the Lord's response to these people who are saying, we're going to stand against you? Yeah, go for it. That's exactly right. He laughs at them, right? Uh, he, he laughs at them. He mocks them, right? He's like, you have no idea how finite you actually are. My plan is going to go forward. My plan will prevail. And you can conspire all that you want to, but I will laugh at you in, 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 as you make these plans. And so uh, there's a few instances in the Old Testament. There's several instances throughout the Old Testament, but two I want to bring up. Um, So the Lord mocks the plans, um, and I want to see a couple different instances. First, he mocks the plans of other gods. All right, so one example of this is in 1 Samuel chapter 4 and 5. Um, So in 1 Samuel chapters 4 and 5, uh, you have uh, the, uh, so at the beginning of Samuel, well, let's even back up further. So you have the Ark of the Covenant, right? So the Ark of the Covenant, get Indiana Jones out of your head for a second. All right, uh, so the Ark of the Covenant uh, throughout the Old Testament is God's presence among the people. All right, they were commanded that when they went into battle throughout the Old Testament, they were to bring the Ark of the Covenant with them. Why? Because it's as if God would be fighting for them. Right? So you see this throughout Joshua. They would bring the Ark of the Covenant in. Okay, well, when you get to 1 Samuel, uh, four, uh, really just prior to that in chapter 3 and 4, um, you begin to see, well, the, the Israelites are going to fight this people, but they're going to go do, to, do this battle that the Lord hasn't necessarily sanctioned. He didn't say, he didn't give the, the, the okay. And so they were like, well, I know what we'll do. We'll just bring the Ark of the Covenant with us and then we'll win. 
And so they bring in the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, They go to fight the Philistines. And in the process of fighting the Philistines with the Ark of the Covenant, they not only lose because this was against God's will and God's plan, uh, they also lose the Ark of the Covenant. So the Philistines take back the Ark of the Covenant. Now remember, this is God's presence. This is representative of God's presence among the people of Israel. Now the Philistines have it. And what the Philistines do is they go and they place the Ark of the Covenant at the feet of their god, Dagon, or Dagon, or Dagonet. You can pick your, your, your poison there. Uh, so they place it before Dagon. When they place the Ark of the Covenant before Dagon, here's what we read in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. So they have God's presence. They have the, the Ark of the Covenant. They went and they set it at the feet of Dagon. Verse 3. When the people of Ashdod arose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So this is the picture that you get. You have Dagon standing here as the, you know, the God of the Philistines. You have the ark of the covenant at his feet. When they come back in the morning, nobody was in there. Nobody had touched him. Dagon was fallen over at the feet of Yahweh. I'm like, hey, that was weird. Verse four. Uh, I mean, uh, ending of verse 3. They took Dagon and put him back up on his place. Well, that was weird. A strong breeze came through and blew him over. Uh, Let's just put him back up. Verse 4. But the following morning, when they arose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold, and only his body remained. This is a, uh, in, in, throughout this, what is, what is happening here? That when Yahweh was placed at the feet of a Philistine god, what happened to that god? Not only did he fall over once, he fell over a second time, and this time he lost his head and his hands at the feet of the Lord. And he was now subject, and he was now submitting to God. The Lord is in control. The Lord knows what he's doing. And when other nations try to plot against him and rage against him, they fall at his feet, whether they want to or not. Further, another story, right? So not only does he laugh and mock the other gods, and we saw that with Dagon, he also knows, uh, and this is what I said just a second ago, that the Lord is in control of all situations. So think of the book of Joshua as an example, right? So the uh, conquest, defeat, you got Israel going over and over again into battle, conquering the promised land, and they get to, uh, in uh, Joshua chapter 7, or Joshua chapter 6 and 7. So you have uh, the battle of Jericho, right? Big battle, march around the walls, right? Some of you got veggie tales in your head right now. Uh, but they march around the walls, and then the walls come tumbling down. Maybe you got the song actually in your head, because that's what I just did. Uh, the, the walls come tumbling down, and uh, they, they win this massive battle of Jericho. They go over to the next city, and it's the battle of Ai. So literally, it's an A and an I. You can call it I. I call it Ai just because I don't know why. But it, you get to the city of Ai, and it's just a small little town. And they're like, okay. This is our next conquest. We can go do this. So they just kind of go. But the problem was, is that at the end of the battle of Jericho, the Lord told them, hey, don't take anything with you. Destroy everything. Uh, Don't take anything with you or else there are going to be consequences. So they get to the battle of Ai. They're like, we got this. This is just a few thousand people. This is nothing compared to Jericho. They go into battle and they lose. Joshua's like, whoa, 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 Lord, we're supposed to win this thing. Like you, you, we said the promised land thing. You were with us. We just defeated Jericho. That was really cool. What happened? He said, well, there's sin among you. So Achan, another guy, he had taken this stuff. And through that process, Achan was then kicked out. Then they go back into, the, into AI and they defeat them as they should have. 
Now, I say that story because what's interesting is, is that God used another nation to condemn his own people. A small nation to condemn his own people and to prove his point that my plan will prevail and you will submit to my will. Why? Because that's who I am. I am God even to his own people. So we have to know that, yes, the Lord mocks other gods, but the Lord also mocks when we have sin in our life. He's like, my plan will prevail. I will give away salvation. We're going to talk about that here in a second. At the same time, I am in control at all times, and I am not surprised by anything. So we we, we see this, um, and then in the New Testament, not only is, uh, so we see him, uh, God laughing at the other gods, we see that the Lord is in control, and that the Lord's plan will prevail. Uh, just for time's sake, I encourage you, check out Acts chapter 5, whenever uh, Gamaliel the high priest comes to, uh, and, and, and he's approaching uh, the apostles, and they begin to preach Jesus, preach Jesus, preach Jesus, and everybody's getting really mad, and Gamaliel the high priest goes, hey look, if, 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 if if this is actually from God, like if, if this whole Jesus thing is real, then you're not going to be able to stop it. That's a Jewish high priest looking at everybody else going, remember this guy who rose up and he had followers and then he died and then they all scattered. Remember this guy who rose up, he had followers, they all died and then, I mean, he died and then they all scattered. If this Jesus is the same as those two guys, those two yahoos, then they're just going to scatter over time. But if this is from the Lord, then you will not stop it. That's Acts chapter 5. So the Lord is in control. The Lord's plan prevails. The Lord mocks other gods. C.H. Spurgeon said it like this. God's anointed, right? Jesus, God's anointed is appointed and shall not be disappointed. Jesus is king and he, no one will overthrow his throne. So therefore, so we see the world's plan is to destroy, to stand against the Lord and his anointed one. The uh, Lord's response to that plan is to mock them saying, my plan will prevail for I've established my king on Zion. Zion being Jerusalem, uh, the, the, the place where God is dwelling. Uh, my king will come and he will, that's where he will be. So that's his response. Now what is God's plan? So in response to the world's plan, God mocks and then offers a different plan. This is where we see in verse 7 of chapter 2 of Psalms. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. So now you have the anointed one. This Jesus, and he begins to speak. And the king, he's basically, the, the, the language here, it's like the, he is giving, the king's anointed issues a king's decree. He's giving the decree. He's laying out the plan of what's about to happen. It's a royal announcement. What is the announcement? That the anointed one will be the one to carry out the perfect plan of the Lord. And nothing will thwart it. That the anointed one is going to carry out the plan of God and nothing is going to thwart it. This is what we see in uh, Philippians chapter 2, right? One of my favorite passages of scripture in Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11. And in your relationships with one another, have the same mind as Christ, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, taking on the form of uh, uh, as, as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Jesus, 
comes all the way down and serves mankind to the extent to where he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So that's what we call the declination of Jesus. This is what we call the dissension of Jesus. Yet it doesn't stop there. Because therefore, because of this decline, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now, I love this, because remember in in verse 1 of Psalm chapter 2, the nations that rage and the peoples will plot in vain. Well, those same nations that are raging and standing against the Lord... What's the guarantee at the end? They will bow before him. His ascension, right? This uh, Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father uh, guarantees his perfect rule. So you see this language of this iron scepter. Uh, you might, maybe your translation says iron rod. Uh, it's, it's kind of the image of a shepherd's crook, okay? So you have this, this, this shepherd's hook that... Um, uh, and it, it, when you think of a shepherd, okay, so uh, we're going to get to, uh, we've been going over Psalms uh, at midweek uh, at our Wednesday night service. If you can't make it to midweek, I encourage you, you can check those out online as well. Um, but here in a few weeks, we're going to cover Psalm chapter 23, where we see uh, the good shepherd and how that paints a picture and really tie that into Jesus as the good shepherd at the same time, um, seeing the Lord as our shepherd. But as his iron scepter, what, is a, what does a shepherd's staff do? Well, it does a couple things. What, one is that it helps uh, and cares for the the sheep, right? It sort of helps sort out the sheep. It, it can move among the sheep, and, 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 and that way the, the, the shepherd can do what the shepherd is supposed to do. It also does another thing. It's used to fight off marauders. It's used to fight off bears and wolves and people, right? Those people that are trying to, those things that are trying to attack the sheep, that staff is there. So this scepter has this image that Jesus will come as he reigns on his throne to judge and protect To judge, yes, to judge the peoples of this world, those who follow Jesus, those who don't, and to protect his own. Why? Because his plan will prevail. The rod and that scepter, this verse in um, verse 9, is actually quoted three times in Revelation. So if you look at Revelation uh, Revelation 2, 26 and 27, Revelation 12, verse 5, and Revelation 19, verse 15, the use of uh, verse 9 in there is used in uh, speaking about Jesus. It's communicating his judgment of the world, knowing that his plans will prevail and that he is sitting at the right hand of the Father, uh, ruling well. This is also the same reason why we see that when Jesus comes throughout the Gospels, the overarching, overwhelming message that Jesus continues to preach, the kingdom of God is here, or the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. Why would he talk about kingdom language there? Well... We see it in Psalm chapter 2 that he is going to come and rule and reign over the earth. And the kingdom, right, his rule, his reign over his people in a particular place is happening. Why does he keep preaching that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand? So the Lord's plan will prevail. So we saw the world's destructive plan. Then we see the Lord's mocking response. Then the Lord says, this is my plan. That Jesus is going to come and he's going to bring salvation to all. And because and in light of my plan, let me offer you a response. What is then the world's recommended response? Verse 10. So now kings, be wise. So in light of God's plan, in light of God's mocking response to the world's plan, 
So now kings be wise. Receive instructions, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son, or he will be angry and he will perish in your rebellion, for his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. So now, because the Lord's perfect plan makes the world's plan of destruction mock-worthy, what is, the, what is the appropriate response? Submit to the Lord. But here's the thing. This ending part is not an ultimatum. He's not saying, you know, he's not trying to force any... He's, it's an invitation. He's saying, this is the reality. God's plan... For salvation, that anyone who stands against him, they will fail. This is the reality. And so in light of that reality, I invite you to submit to the king. I invite you to come and know this king. So what should we do in response to these things? There's a few things, right? First, be wise and take the Lord's instruction. You want to know what you are supposed to do as a follower of King Jesus? You want to know what you're supposed to do as you look at being obedient to who Christ is? To, as you look at following the Lord, know that whatever plans that you set up to try and prosper yourself, whatever plans you set up to try and sort of connive your way into propping yourself up, that the Lord will destroy those plans. But what does he say? Be wise and take the Lord's instruction. Be wise and take the Lord's instruction. What do we see in Psalm chapter 1? Right? How happy or how blessed is the man who does not walk, does not stand, does not sit in the counsel of the wicked, but does what? Delights himself in the Lord's instruction. So now we're seeing the tying in of Psalm chapters 1 and 2. The one who is blessed is the one who delights himself in the Lord's instruction. And now we sort of see the completion that the one who is blessed is the one who takes refuge in Christ. That's what we see at the very end in chapter, uh, verse 12. All who take refuge in him are happy. How blessed or how happy is the man in the beginning of Psalm chapter 1. Now we see the conclusion of Psalm chapter 2. If you want to know how to be blessed, if you want to know how to be happy, we not only delight ourselves in the Lord's instruction, now we give this complete picture of submitting to the will and the plan of the Lord, knowing that salvation can only come from him. Not only salvation, but his plans will prevail in light of our plans. And so then, therefore, we receive the instruction and we submit to that instruction and we serve and worship the king. Now, what's interesting here is some translations say pay homage. Does anyone's translation say kiss the son? Okay, so that's more the literal translation of uh, what's going on here. Uh, think about it this way. If a king is sitting on his throne, what, does, what do you go do? You go kiss the, kiss the ring. In doing that, you're submitting to his authority. So think of it this way. What the Lord is asking us to do as men, what the Lord is asking us to do as people, our natural inclination is like the nations that rage against the Lord. We want and desire to stand against the Lord. That is what is innate inside of us. We are uh, murderers. We are idolaters. We, have, we are all sorts of all kinds of sin. That's who we are as people. At the same time, the Lord is inviting us to kiss the ring, to pay homage to the Son, to submit to the Lord. You can maybe say it this way, to pledge our allegiance to him. When we talk about, oh, I believe in Jesus, and then, uh, I, you know, I say this prayer and believe in Jesus, and, and you'll be saved, and then we sort of move on from that. I think that's appropriate, and I think that's fine. And that's what I'll tell my kids when, as we get to that age. 
At the same time, I think a better illustration as we get older is to learn more that that belief is really uh, further. It, it can be defined more like a surrender or an allegiance to. We are pledging our allegiance. We are surrendering under the lordship and the kingship of Jesus, saying, I am giving you my life, O king of the earth. Why? Because any plan that I do will not prevail, but yours always will. If there is no humble acceptance of his reign, what are we, what's the promise here? Well, the wrath will come, perishing will come, and all of this is imminent. All of this is coming. Wrath will come, perishing will come, all of this is imminent, but he's offering us an invitation to take refuge in him. Why? Because if we want to be blessed, if we want to be happy, just as he began in Psalm 1, we want to do that. We submit to him, take refuge in him, and pledge our allegiance to him as king. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. Thank you for Psalm chapter 2. God, just what an encouraging, uh, just an encouraging passage to see that when, when we see the world around us chaotic and crazy and doing their own thing, that we not, we're not surprised by that. At the same time, Lord, I pray we don't get sucked into it. Lord, I know that there's this constant pool where we always want to be our own gods. At the same time, Lord, I pray that we see that we submit to your kingship. We submit to your lordship, knowing that our plans will fail, but yours will always prevail. It's in your son Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.